A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It was really debilitating. Like it's, um, it's difficult to describe, but it just has such an impact on absolutely every facet of your life. You know, um, your sleeping habits, your mental health, you know, your relationships with other people, because because it's so relentless and there is absolutely no escaping from it. It really affected my personality and you know my stress levels, and I just felt like crap all the time. Kia ora, no mai haramai kitiau hurehanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Clerken Cannon Thene. Today we're talking tinnitus. Emily Lane was born with a hearing disability and has had tinnitus on and off all of her life. But it turned up, I think roughly in 2005 or 2006, it turned up permanently and it was excruciating. It was just so invasive, it was incredibly loud and there was just no escaping it. Tinnitus is a phantom perception. You are actually hearing the sound, but it's not a sound. This is Professor Grant Searchfield, Head of Audiology at Waipapa Taumata the University of Auckland. For every other sound that we hear, sound has a position in space created by an object that's making it. But tinnitus is heard as a sound, but it's an unreal sound. It isn't something that exists that we can interact with in the environment. And this dichotomy between real-world sound and tinnitus is part of the reason that's so bothersome and why our attention is drawn to it. Because for survival purposes, we use our auditory system to identify where a sound is coming from, and then we use our visual system to confirm that that's what's causing it. When we can't visually confirm tinnitus, it takes on an unusual importance, and it's very difficult to ignore. It's not uncommon you might know exactly what we're talking about here. So most people have experienced something typically after a loud sound, sometimes referred to as nightclub tinnitus, where people wake up the next day and be aware that there's a sound in the ears. This happens to a lot of people and often fades within a few hours. But for some people, tinnitus does not fade. Time for a quick auditory system introduction. Sound waves funnel down the ear, hit the eardrum, and cause it to vibrate. And this sets the ear bones in motion, which amplify the vibrations and sends them to the inner ear, to the cochlea. The cochlea is filled with fluid and these bundles of hair cells. The vibrations make the fluid ripple, which in turn moves the hair cells. Now, different hair cells respond to different frequencies of sound, and they convert the physical vibrations into electrical signals, which travel along the auditory nerve to the brain. And it's in the brain that the electrical signals are interpreted into the sounds that we recognize and understand. So what's happening in nightclub tinnitus and in tinnitus that doesn't go away? What it really represents is uh, hyperactivity somewhere within the auditory system. Initially, that might be created by the ear itself, but after six weeks to 12 weeks, if it's still there, it's actually now moved into the auditory pathways and it's activity that's become connected between the auditory system and other parts of the brain. And so 
there's a network of activity broadly across the brain that explains the, the tinnitus sound. So the brain is firing in a pattern that makes a person hear sounds that just aren't there. Here's Emily again. It's like a chorus of cicadas living permanently on full blast inside my head. So it was just incredibly invasive. It really affected my sleeping patterns, um, my mental health, everything. There was just, it was just relentless. It's hard to describe. I don't think that people can, unless they have experienced it themselves full time, I don't think they can really understand just how, how debilitating it can be. But we're going to try. Think about an annoying sound you've experienced. Maybe the neighbour's trimmer at 8am on a Sunday morning. Or that jackhammer on the street outside your work. You have an element of control over these. You can leave your house or the office. You can avoid the nightclub, turn down the radio. Now imagine that you couldn't. Think about it being there 24-7. Wherever you go, whatever you do, it's there. It's very unrelenting. And if we aren't able to short-circuit that, it can be incredibly overwhelming and distressing. So this unrelenting nature, the inability to escape it, is really a problem for those people that suffer from tinnitus chronically. In terms of what the initial cause is, for our nightclub tinnitus, it's that loud noise. Is it some kind of loud event or damage in that mechanical area of the ear, or is it just different between different people? Well, there is a difference between people, but I think that the nightclub noise, music, loud music, or industrial noise for a short period of time, having that tinnitus there is sort of a little bit of a warning that that sound that has caused it has been damaging. So tinnitus in that instance is a little bit like a, a barometer of damage to the hearing system. But it generally goes away in that short term. But when that damage has occurred long term, then, uh, and it's established, that creates the chronic tinnitus. The real recipe for severe, debilitating, catastrophic tinnitus is the combination of a loud sound possibly some trauma to the head, along with a psychological experience. So, for example, for those people who have been exposed to a loud sound and an accident and they've seen events that they don't want to re-see, the post-traumatic stress disorder that's associated with that can make tinnitus even worse than run-of-the-mill tinnitus. And we know, for example, that tinnitus is the number one injury in veterans' affairs in the United States with their uh, military. And there you've got the combination of loud sound, often um, head trauma, and seeing things that no one ever should really see. And that combination there is really the perfect storm for tinnitus. Grant works with people who have chronic tinnitus, meaning it stuck around for more than six months. Some of those people still won't have a problem because they've been able to adapt to it, a natural mechanism that they have. But for other people, it does take on this unusual importance and effectively the brain makes them pay attention to it. And in doing so, it can become a very vicious cycle where that attention focuses on the tinnitus, the tinnitus gets louder, they focus more attention onto it. So much so that the brain is working so hard in hearing the tinnitus that it's less able to focus on other activities and actually um, it reduces the ability to process on, on tasks. So it affects cognition. 
But importantly, it can affect things such as sleep. It's frustrating and it can impact on social life. It can lead to anxiety and depression for individuals. And in turn, those particular problems exacerbate the tinnitus. So when we're trying to treat tinnitus, we're treating both the sound but also the consequences. So our approach has been to tackle tinnitus in a multidimensional way to look at the sound, the reaction, tinnitus, and how all these things interplay. To do this, his research group approaches the problem from several different angles. Now, one of the trickiest things about tinnitus is that it is heterogeneous, which means it varies from person to person. Some people hear a ringing, some a buzzing, Others hear a hiss or a hum, or it sounds like crickets or a kettle boiling. And it can sound like it's coming from in front of the head, or behind, or to the side. And of course, the researcher can't hear it. All of this makes it really tricky to study, to characterise types of tinnitus, and to figure out what treatment works best for which type. So one of the things that PhD candidate Dunya Vysakovich has been working on is tinnitus matching, and then trying to help people fade their tinnitus out. Oftentimes they will say that it sounds like one thing, but when you try to match it, it doesn't. So they'll say, oh, it's crickets, for example, but then if you try to match to like a sound of a cricket, it won't be the specific cricket that they hear. So it's very difficult to match. Um, And so often the way that it is matched is just with a pure tone, so like a piano key sound, because it's easy, it's just one frequency, and you can sort of try to get an understanding of what they hear. But what we're trying to move towards, because that's quite a simple representation of tinnitus, is adding features that make it more alike to what the person actually hears. And for your research in particular, what you wanted to help get people towards is to, so that their brain would consider their tinnitus as just like a background atmosphere noise. And you picked a background atmosphere noise of like rain pattering. Yes. So Grant did some research before and it's been sort of seen that rain sounds in general are quite commonly used masking sounds for tinnitus. They're quite pleasant sounds and they have a very relaxing uh, quality to them. And because they are an environmental sound that people know what it is, what I try to do is, within that rain sound, sort of replicate their tinnitus so that at least one pitch or a dominant pitch that can be heard within that rain sound is their tinnitus. And over time, so over the training period, that pitch gets sort of softer and softer and just merges and is embedded within that rain sound. So what I can do is I can show you. So we have the rain sound. And this is what we start off with. Then I add a filter, like so. And this pitch, so you can still hear that rain, but this is what I was asking participants to focus on and tell me whether we can move it to get it to their tinnitus pitch. So I would ask them to tell me if it's higher than the tinnitus, lower. And over time, it would essentially do this.
Dunya's showing me this on a computer in a control room, in a space that looks familiar. The computer's on a table underneath a large glass window that looks into a sound-controlled room. It has the look, feel, and sound of a studio. But inside this studio is a very comfy-looking chair, a strange-looking cap, and a whole bunch of wires. This is where participants come in to do hearing tests and tinnitus matching and training with Dunya. But while she does this, she also monitors their brain activity using EEG. It's electroencephalography. Essentially what it is, is it's measuring the neural activity using all these uh, electrodes. For my PhD, I was using 64 electrodes. And essentially what it will do is it will just give you the activity of the person's brain over time. To show me how it works, we rope in Dr. Amit Burday. Amit is a research fellow in the lab who's working on developing a simpler EEG tool. He takes a seat in the comfy chair. So essentially what we what I do is I will first measure um, the head just to match up to a cap. Um, you don't want one that's too tight, otherwise it will just like start slipping up. Or if it's too loose, then what happens is that the electrodes can't get close enough to the scalp and then you just don't get accurate readings. Um, and so... And your cap has a kind of um, an satisfying, like, jingly noise as if it's covered in sequins or something, but they are not sequins. No, so they are little labelled holes. Essentially, each hole has an accompanying electrode that is plugged into it, and each electrode just focuses or measures electrical activity from a specific part of the head. And what we also need to do is make sure that it is centred so that the CZ electrode is at the centre of the head. So what we do is also um, just measure from just above his nose to the sort of protrusion at the back of his head. So you just have to adjust it a little bit to make sure that the electrodes are recording from where you want them to be recording. Amit's now sporting what looks like an all-red surf life-saving cap, tied under his chin and covering the top of his head. Except it's full of these labelled holes, and in Dunya's hands is a massive bundle of wires with circular colour-coded attachments at the end. We need to add gel to each of the little holes. The point of it is to be in contact with the skin to help with the conductance of the signal to the electrode. And the electrodes are really nicely organised so that it makes sense when you start plugging them in um, into these little branches. Um, So you'll have, they're all labelled, so we have... FZ will go here, and then you just plug them in, and you do that for all 64. And that's the thing, it's a very painless process for the participant, <laughs> but uh, for you as the researcher, <laughs> there we go. I guess also another thing is for the people uh, listening and don't know, the gel is of a similar consistency to the hair gel that you apply. Maybe slightly thicker, but just so that you get an idea of what what it feels like. So think of filling that gel into a syringe and then squeezing it through these holes and then putting the electrodes into place. Does your hair look great afterwards? It looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's an acquired taste. Um, no, it, it's, it dissolves in water. So 
I often give people just a towel to wipe their head um, and then they often go to the, the bathroom and just <laughs> deal with it. So they never look terrible when they leave. So 64 electrodes later, yes, this will help you see what? For us, I like to see at baseline what their brain is doing, so what the activity is like during the training, if there is if there are any changes, and then also immediately after. And obviously I can't tell any of that as it's going on, but after a lot of data analysis and filtering and so on, that's when we get all that juicy information. Have you done this before, Emmett? Yes, I have. Not in as much detail as Dunya does it, so she's trained a fair bit to get this right, uh, whereas the work that I'm doing basically looks at reducing the number of electrodes. So right now this is 64. Yes. Yeah. On uh, the other headset that we have, those currently have, I think, six electrodes. So we're trying to make it more uh, user-friendly in the sense that people can either wear it easily at home or maybe come into the clinic and uh, have someone who isn't particularly well-trained in the administration of an EEG test or whatever uh, uh, put it on. So, for example, audiologists already have a lot of work to do. So, you don't want, or they don't want to spend more time training and doing uh, all this, which you can see takes a fair amount of time to uh, set up. They want, they'd probably want something that's easy to put on. So, just pop it on someone's head and bring up uh, an app or whatever it is and uh, monitor the activity. Research in a different lab used machine learning to determine which EEG electrodes seem to be most important for detecting tinnitus-related brain activity in response to treatment. So Amit has taken that information to develop his prototype six-electrode headset to see if he can make a version that can be easier to use but still give good information. But unfortunately, as Grant explains, there's not one single tinnitus area that you can point to. So when we do look at the various images of the brain related to tinnitus, there is no single portion of the brain that we can identify and say, that person has tinnitus. There's a collection, a pattern of activity across the brain that is dynamic and changes for the individual. But we see these characteristics again and again across individuals with tinnitus. So what we end up with is a large amount of circumstantial evidence within the brain that this person has tinnitus. And when we're able to change the tinnitus, we see changes in those areas. So we're able to essentially um, triangulate the change in tinnitus that they report with the treatment that we provide, with the changes in the brain. And through the circumstantial evidence, we're able to pull out patterns of activity that represent the tinnitus. Grant and his lab group have been working in the area of tinnitus for about two decades now. And it's culminated in a digital therapeutic that the team has developed to help retrain people's brains. A lot of what we're trying to do is to promote the correct connections in the brain to reduce connections in the brain. And it's important to say that when we talk about these brain changes, we're not talking about the brain shrinking or growing. We're talking about functional chemical connections that always happen when we learn. And so we're harnessing the brain's natural ability to learn, but we're training. We're essentially exercising the brain through our digital therapeutic to learn 
what are good sounds and what are tinnitus sounds. And through that, we create a disconnection between the tinnitus and perception. And if we achieve that, then the person no longer hears the tinnitus. Dr. Phil Sanders worked on this digital therapy and ran a trial to test its effectiveness. But remember, the sound differs for each person. And not just that, says Phil. It's the sound, the experience and the reaction and how well they respond to treatments are all different. So it's a really difficult thing to, to, to treat. So that's why we kind of work towards trying to individualise treatments. Okay, what is a digital therapeutic? Well, from a user's point of view, it's essentially like an app. Something on your phone or computer that you interact with. But, Grant and Phil tell me, digital therapeutic is the term for this kind of technology because it has research and evidence behind it, and it will be prescribed after initial conversation with an audiologist. So, how does it work? In the latest version that we're developing, there's essentially three main parts, which are called relief, relax, and retrain, and some of these things will overlap. These three sections, relief, relax, retrain, help with the personalization of the therapy because people can select what they need when they feel they need it. So if the tinnitus is really stressing the person out, they can go to the relax section. We would have things like a gently flowing river or a waterfall, forest sounds. We like to give people choice because different sounds mean different things to different people. And some sounds which someone might find calming, someone else might find distressing. So um, there'll be a range of, of sounds like that. The relief section is about drawing the person's attention away from the tinnitus so they can get a break from it. This is a bit of a crossover with the relaxation sounds. We might use similar sounds in some cases, but then there will be sort of more going on in it spatially. So we'll use uh, binaural sounds or um, spatialized sort of 3D sounds. We also have some that have been specially engineered so that the way that the the sound develops over time changes. And some of those sounds are just kind of noise sounds, like white noise or pink noise. Pink noise is like white noise, but with more lower frequencies. Which people don't necessarily always associate with something that they would find pleasant, but they can be very effective. Often when people give them a go, they actually find, oh yeah, this is nicer than listening to my tinnitus. For retrain, the user is actively involved in games and activities to engage with and move sound around and train their brain not to focus on the tinnitus. So on the prototype, we had a game where they would be presented with three sounds. So one would be to the left, one to the right, and one to the centre, so to both ears equally. And they would either be told to focus on one of those positions and then say what the sound was that they heard, or they would be told to listen for a sound and then they would have to listen to all the positions and then tell us where they heard it. Um, So that was a basic version in the next iteration. Yeah, we'll be making it a bit more complex than that. With their initial digital therapeutic prototype, the team ran a trial, comparing its use with a popular sound therapy app. Emily was part of this trial, and she used the digital therapeutic for about two to three hours per day over three months. Just basically like a, um, a set of um, bone conduction headphones. It's attached to a, an app on your phone and it's all connected via Bluetooth. And you know what? It's actually quite relaxing. Like it's just it's variations of, a, of white noise and there's a, there's a whole bunch of different sort of um, soundscapes and therapy that you can use. But they, they run you through a testing program and they're able to, uh, to test the, uh, the pitch and the tone of your tinnitus. And they then develop uh, white noise sounds that are specific to your pitch and tone. 
61 people completed the trial, split into the two groups. And after 12 weeks of use, 43% of the users of the standard sound therapy app show clinically meaningful changes, as measured by the Tinnitus Functional Index, which is like a standard measurement of how badly tinnitus impacts a person's life. And for the users of this new therapy, 65% of people showed improvement. And Emily was one of them. I woke up one morning and it was gone. Oh, that must have been I amazing. I literally, I literally cried. It was just, it's just made such a difference in my life. It really has. So I've been living probably tinnitus free for about a year now, and it's just started coming. It's just started coming back. No, not to the um, nowhere near to the same extent as it was before. I've just been using the app again, and I just use it for probably um, half an hour a day, and it definitely manages to keep it at bay. It still comes back every now and then, but it's nowhere near the intensity or the volume that it was, and it's not permanent. And yeah, I'm just so grateful. So with this initial research trial evidence that it can help. It's all on. So now we're in the process of developing it into a commercial release. We're also in talking to the FDA to, to get approval for that. Um, but as you can imagine, with these things, it takes it takes time. And when you say the FDA, that's the US. So that's you're, you're US. also looking to see if you can make it commercially available in the United States. Yeah, that's correct. So a spin-out company has come out of this research, which is based in the US. So we have... The owners and founders are between New Zealand and, and the US. So that will be the next market. Grant says they're hoping to have it commercially available in New Zealand by the end of this year or early next. And this is kind of a neat full circle moment for him. I began uh, researching this basically because as a clinician, I found that I didn't really have any answers to the problems that were presented to me by patients. As a new clinician, I really didn't have any tools that I could use. So I've been looking at this over a period of time and been developing various solutions and we really come to the point now that we can put all those things together in a package that we can make available to clinicians and their patients to provide a, a successful tinnitus treatment. The team are also working on other things that might help. They're looking into machine learning algorithms that can track the digital therapy usage to help make predictions of what treatment works for which type of tinnitus. They're also investigating augmented and virtual reality to see if linking sound with visuals might help patients with their sense of control. In Professor Grant Searchfield's mind, the future looks bright. Well, I think the hope for the future is really good because I think that what we're beginning to understand is that we do need to personalise tinnitus treatments and we're beginning to understand how tinnitus differs from an individual to an individual. We're now getting to the point where we can record these brain waves and accurately predict who is and who's not going to benefit from treatment. This all means that we can begin to prescribe a therapy on the basis of individual needs and individual physiology so can, we can really tune it in to that person's uh, needs as opposed to taking a one-size-fits-all approach, which hasn't been successful. So I believe that in the future, whether it be digital therapy, medications, gene therapy even, we'll be able to do that because we have a great understanding of individual differences in tinnitus and that tinnitus experience. to Professor Grant Searchfield, Dunya Vaisakovic, and to Drs. Amit Bardet and Phil Saunders. 
Massive thanks also to Emily Lane. Ko Clerken Kanana Ho, Te Kaiho Tu o Tene Hotaka, I Afina Mai, a Justin Gregory, Rawa Ko Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. If you want to know more about this topic, our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. There'll be some photos of the research team up there, but we'll also link the research paper and put an email address for the team if you want to reach out to them. We also post on Twitter or Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Tēnā i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.